right, I would welcome you to join me in Hosea chapter 4. In our study through the book, we're moving kind of from the first main section to the second. First main section being about Hosea and his family. And now the remainder, the last, well, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 14, um, we're separate from his family life. And this is, if you remember back to the uh, introduction. This is kind of a, it's a difficult one to outline chapters four through 14, but this is like Hosea's oracles against Israel. It's hard to find specific structure throughout here. There's a little hints at it, but it's quite different than let's say Amos, the last book we studied where it was quite distinct with like, and here's the next oracle from the mouth of God. And here's the next oracle. This one, uh, they blend together a little bit, uh, more, don't think that means there isn't structure it's just more subtle so we're going to make it lord willing through chapters four and five tonight the beginning of chapter six probably um and we will break there you'll you'll see throughout this book and the minor prophets as a whole much of it is cyclical much of it is uh, just returning on its circuits to consider some of the same concepts Uh, And here that certainly is the case even within the night tonight. We go on the same circuit a few different times. Um, So the way we'll look at this, chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of 6, is that the first is a series of a few accusations. So if you're wanting to outline or sort of make marks in the sections, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, is the first accusation, and it concerns The whole land, all of the land is brought before God by Hosea as guilty. And then he moves to consider sort of particular groups of people within the land. So the second section is verses 4 through 10 in chapter 4. And that's that the religious leaders are guilty. And he's going to come down pretty heavily on them tonight, even uh, accusing them of misleading um, and, and being the ones responsible for Israel's sin. Then in verse 11, he's going to include the worshipers that the leaders are leading. So if the priests are the ones leading in worship and they're guilty, well, it doesn't mean that the people they're worshiping aren't guilty either. It just means they've been led there by foolish rulers. So verses 11 through 14, Hosea levels an accusation um, toward all of the religious or cultic worshipers that are, that are there. That's sort of the first series is the, uh, is the series of warnings. So the, the war, or not, not warnings of, of accusations. So everyone's guilty. The whole land is guilty. And then the religious leaders, the priests are guilty. And then all of the worshipers are guilty. The second section is the warnings. Uh, and we'll look at three different warning sections tonight as well. That begins in chapter four, verse 15 through 19. And here he, he, they progress. Each of them gets stronger. He sort of begins by uh, encouraging them to just stop incurring guilt. Like, and he encourages Judah too. He's like, Judah, the southern kingdom, don't participate. Don't follow Israel's lead here or else there will be condemnation. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is our next section. And things get a little bit more serious. And there's a chiasm in 5, 1 through 7 that we'll look at. 
Uh, but God promises there, the center of the chiasm is that he's going to make them stumble for their sin. There's sort of this promised judgment as a result um, of their sin. And then the final section is verses 8 through the end of the chapter, 8 through 15, um, which is the most serious of them all. And he's telling them that they are going to face God's wrath because they have refused to turn. Um, And then, pause for a moment. Yeah, trick or treat. (laughs) Uh, So then chapter six, there's a stark turn from this raging lion, this wrath, this God is like a disease that comes upon them, to then saying, come, let us return to the Lord. Uh, And so it's this encouragement towards repentance in chapter six, one through three, and we'll probably make it that far tonight. So let's begin on the the series of three uh, accusations. The first one, and we probably will spend maybe a little bit more time on this one because it's the, it's a big, just general, broad, everyone is guilty charged toward everyone. Chapter four, we'll read verses one through three. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. Here's the charge. There's no truth. There's no mercy. And there's no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, here's what they're doing. They're swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery. They break all restraints with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, here's the conclusion, the land will mourn and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So the charge is pretty serious, and it, and it is broad. It's threefold. There's three things that are absent from the land that no longer characterize Israel. The first one is truth, and that is Emmet. That's why I named my son this word, is that this is, this is a key characteristic. And, and the semantic range or the meaning of the word uh, is pretty full. It can mean all the way from like we would say that's true or that's false. So it's something that uh, stands perhaps the test of time or that is in contrary to a lie. Like it is a good representation of reality, right? It is true. But it also means true in the sense that perhaps an arrow might be true. Like you can depend upon it. It's constant. It's steady. It's faithful. So all of that, like the loyalty and Uh, trustworthiness, the dependable nature, all of that is sort of encapsulated in this word emet. And it's true. It's one of the characteristics of God too. He he is a God of emet. Um, Here's a quote that I found helpful. So the wholesomeness of the soul, emet is the wholesomeness of the soul that comes from a life that follows principle rather than expediency. So it's constant, it's grounded in truth. It's not just doing that which is convenient or following the tides. No, it's, it's remaining. Uh, perhaps if you think in like woodworking terms, this might be the difference between you know, like um, sound or rotten wood or perhaps sound or wood with a bow or sound or wood with a big knot. It, like what is a good piece of wood? That's an emmet piece of wood. Um, or 
like a genuine or a fake diamond, like any sort of what's a good one compared to one that you can't really trust would be the idea. There's no trust in the lamb. They're not, they have not been faithful. They're not, they've not been true. They're not been constant. So that's a problem. Second problem. There's no chesed. There's no mercy. There's no covenant loyalty in the land either. And that's the most common way that we talk about it. Like the loyal love of God, his faithfulness to his promises. But within the covenant family, there's a little bit more than that that comes along with it. This is going above and beyond duties. This is showing mercy to your neighbor, freely giving of kindness. And, And so the diagnosis here of no mercy or no loyal love means that Israel is being self-centered. They're cruel. uh, They're exacting from other people. So they they work in tandem, these two, don't they? Because that sort of a person would not be a faithful, dependable sort of a person. I think the source of it all is the third one, that the knowledge of God has left the land. And that's the one that he's going to continue coming back to throughout Hosea. So that's part of why I say I think it's the foundational one. Also, if we just look at the pattern, well, where do we learn about truth and mercy? Well, that's the knowledge of God. That's uh, doctrine. That's the law. Uh, It's also, we can think of knowledge in both of these ways. I think we talked about this some throughout Peter. Um, It's true in Old Testament too. Knowledge can be like um, like the doctrine, And it can also be sort of the experience, the relationship, your knowledge of God is your interaction with him. And and so because they've embraced false ideas, right, they've tossed the law, which is sort of what he says in chapter four, verse uh, six, right? They've forgotten the law of their God. That leads to the same sort of forgetfulness that he talked about previously, like with Gomer in the illustration of the wife in chapter three, verse 13, where he says he's going to punish her. She went after other lovers, but me, she forgot, says the Lord. So one quite naturally leads to the other in a both positive and negative directions, right? We would grow closer in relationship to God by the knowledge of him. And we would grow distant from him in habits and activity and cultural uh, realities as we dismiss the knowledge of him. So it's a, it's a pretty big uh, accusation that's being laid against all of Israel. And what he says instead works very well with the absence of the knowledge of God is because he sort of goes through this um, series of one, two, three, four, five single word statements uh, that they are doing instead. They're swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and adulterating. And if that doesn't remind you of a specific list, then I don't know what would, right? This sort of takes us to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments, to consider primarily the social interactions that they're supposed to be having with with each other, save the first one would be most closely tied to uh, commandment number three, not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's probably related to this swearing, like taking a false oath. He also, which is more worship related. But the other ones, lying, killing, stealing, adultery, those are community related. So that's the main impact or the eventual fruit of rejecting the knowledge of God is when you reject his knowledge, you're rejecting his law. You are actually freeing yourself from what? All restraints. They've broken them all. They don't care about any of them. The Ten Commandments don't matter whatsoever. 
And then he brings it back at the end of verse 2 to say, what's the result? Bloodshed upon bloodshed. And I don't know that he's speaking quite so much lit- like literally there as he's describing uh, one, probably tying us back into Jezreel. If you remember the, the valley of bloodshed that he's going to bring upon Israel. So he's, he may even be tying these three circuits of judgments or of charges into the three children's names. And this would be the one about Jezreel that it has just produced this spiritual and cultural bloodshed where they just abuse one another and let the blood of a neighbor flow freely because they don't care about the Decalogue. They don't care about God's law. So that's the, uh, the offense. And then the result is that the land is going to mourn. Therefore, uh, God's going to bring drought. He's going to bring famine. Everyone's going to waste away. Even the beasts, the birds, the fish, it's all going to be taken away from them. Great uh, loss. So that's charge number one, which is charge against all of Israel together. The second one, he zeroes in on the religious leaders and that's verses four through 10. So let's read through that. He says, let, uh, now let no man contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. I'm going to pause and make a, a note about the pattern so that you can see it as we go through here. It's almost every other verse. I may just say it as we go through. His pattern is guilt or, or accusation and then punishment. Here's what you've done. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you've done. Here's what I'm going to do. And he just keeps bouncing back and forth there. So verse four was what uh, they, have, they have done, right? Don't bring up. Uh, contentions to each other because your priests are misleading you. Therefore, here's what's going to happen. Punishment. You shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night and I will destroy your mother. Here's what you have done. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Here's what I'm going to do. I will reject you from being a priest for me. What you have done because you have forgotten the law of your God. Here's what I'm going to do. I will also forget your children. Here's what you have done. The more the priests increased, the more they sinned against me. Here's what I'm going to do. I will change their glory into shame. Here's what the priests have done. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. Here's what I'm going to do. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. But they shall, uh, for they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. So you see just that back and forth pattern. And you may have also noticed if we're associating each one of these, if, if Jose is associating each one of these uh, charges with one of his children, then which one of his children would be brought up in the second circuit? We have two left, right? Lo Ruhama, no mercy, or Lo Ami, no, not my people. You see one of the two of those come up consistently? I'm going to awkwardly wait, I guess. Which one is mentioned throughout this oracle? Yeah, constantly. He said in, in verse... Um, Six, right? My, my people, Ami, are destroyed. And then he says he, he's going to forget the children, which is a, perhaps an illusion 
And then verse 8, they eat up the sin of my people, of Ami. So it's interesting here is he's, he's leveling these accusations against the priests. And in conversation with the priests, he's still referring to the people that they're leading as Ami, as my people. But then you remember the next section moves to actually consider the offense of the corporate group of the worshipers. And there he says, in verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols. So he actually brings it like, look how you've misled mine. Look how you've misled mine. But yes, mine have walked away from me too. Everybody followed the priests. They all followed the religious leaders. Um, So back to... Uh, kind of this, the pattern of the back and forth. Uh, so verse four, he's kind of saying, there's no, there's no point in all of you like bringing accusations against each other. Like saying, uh, if I've already accused the land of saying no truth, no mercy, no knowledge, those things aren't there. There's no use in all of you being like, yeah, no truth, no mercy, no knowledge. Because if they were to do that, all they're doing is saying, look, we've been severely misled. The problem is the leaders. The problem is the preachers, the priests. So he's saying your people are like those who contend with the priests. That's the issue. So because that's the problem, verse five, the priests are going to stumble in the day and the prophets parallel. So the religious leaders, right, are also are going to stumble with you in the night. Then I'm going to destroy your mother. So the stumbling is is either um, a reference to drunkenness, kind of like someone who, you know, you might expect that by from a, a poor, oppressed person at night. There may be an appropriate part uh, time for like revelries and drunkenness. That's what you. That's when you would expect to see it, but surely not from the priest during the day. So he's going to make him stumble around in the same way a drunk man might at night. Uh, the other option is that he's referring instead to. Uh, like the sort of concept that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So God has ordered everything and he's uh, other Psalms might say like he keeps their steps sure. He makes their feet steady. And God's like, I'm not going to do that. You're going to bumble about. You're going to look as a fool and your steps won't be assured. Um, And I will destroy your mother. And that. I think is taking us back to the Gomer illustration um, where the Gomer is the leaders and the children are the people in his illustration. And so he's saying, I'm going to take this from the top down. I'll destroy the, the kings and I'll destroy the rulers and those people. And then that will naturally affect the children too. So he's going to start uh, destroying or judging Israel from the top down. Um, the next two are quite related to each other. So it's like an ABAB in the next two accusations. And the accusation is that my people on me, the reason that they're destroyed is because of a lack of knowledge. That parallel pair is the maybe six C because you've forgotten the law of your God. What God's going to do, he'll reject them from being a priest and he will then forget the children. So he starts with destroying the mother and then the end here, he forgets the children. Um, I think that this is just to maybe jump from Hosea to just some application, particularly in the knowledge of God and tied to the fact that the leaders weren't instructing the people. 
that this is, this is an important thing for us to just remember and consider, even as a local church family, that maintaining or keeping the, the law of God, the instruction of the Lord constantly in front of us, that that's what leads us. That's what we are following. That's where we learn of truth and mercy and how we should live and personally and in interaction with each other and in interaction with the culture. We take all of our cues from the knowledge of God. When the knowledge of God leaves, we have nothing. We have no way to know which, like how, how we should live. Uh, so there is hope and life and even family in these divine words. And if someone rejects then the knowledge of God, um, we must not let it be because they were uninstructed. Right? Even from within our church family, if someone rejects the knowledge of God, it's not because we don't have it or we're not preaching it. We're not teaching it. It's not before us. It's because they've run from it. So that's kind of, you feel like the weight of the accusation on the leadership there to be the ones that are setting the tone. Follow me as we follow the word. That's the idea here. And because they didn't do that, they said, follow me as we follow Baal. Everyone went astray. So it just brings us back to that reminder there, uh, the importance of the knowledge of God. So verse seven, you would think that the more the priests increased, the better off the people were. The more leaders we had who were spiritually minded, the better off we are. But no, he says, the more that the priests increased, the more sin abounded. So that just speaks again to the quality of their leadership. So God's response is to change their glory into their shame. That's, he's going to take this religious system that they have built. He's going to take the gods that they have led the people to. He's going to take all of their sacrifices and their system. And that which is bringing them livelihood, that which is causing the people to rejoice in their leaders, that's going to become the very thing that, that is their downfall. It's their shame. It's, it's um, that which they hang their heads about. Uh, and then the last accusation, they eat up the sin of my people. It's kind of an interesting phrase. Next parallel, they set their heart on their iniquity. Um, I think he's genuinely saying that they're, well, there's two ways perhaps, that they're feeding on the sins of the people. So one, they're getting provision from it, right? The the cow is eating from the grain that he's plowed there. They get benefit from all of these offerings and sacrifices and even the judges or perhaps impose a tax or things like that. And they're going to get benefit from it. But the second phrase seems to uh, perhaps go a little bit beyond that. They set their heart on the iniquity of the people. They love it. They've dedicated themselves to the multiplication of wickedness in the family of God. That's what they want. That's what they love. And we'll, uh, we'll see that stated explicitly in the third one, uh, that the, the very things that ought to be shields for Israel instead are elements of shame. And they, they've chosen to love these other gods. So uh, that's the nature, the character of the leaders. And so it shall be that God's going to do the same thing to them that they have done to the people they've led. Like people that have experienced frustration from the priest, 
So the priest will experience frustration from the hand of God. He's going to punish them for their ways, reward them for their deeds. Here's a description of what that may look like. They'll eat but not have enough. They'll commit harlotry but not increased because they have ceased obeying the Lord. That's exactly what the people have done. That's the way the priests have led the people to eat but not have enough, to commit harlotry but not increased because they have not obeyed. They don't care about the law. So God is going to bring that same thing upon these people. They're going to be cast out. He's going to cast them down and uh, put them underneath his feet in the same way that the priests have to the people. Um, Those sort of things that they thought they were getting, like food and sexual pleasures and abundance, that I think also reminds us of Gomer, who was getting things from her lovers, right? She chased them because there was food there. There was oil and wine there. There was wool and linen, food, clothing, um, and perhaps rituals and, and, and medicine. All of that was present uh, in the house of her lover. So here they're going to get a portion of it, but never enough to satisfy them. Third circuit of accusations. Here, again, he's going to move to the people. Uh, Harlotry, wine and new wine enslave the heart. There's what's probably the first half of a proverb. Then he goes into the content. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols and their staff informs them. Note the parallelism here. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. They've played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills. Under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. So there's the poem. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, probably the second half of the proverb. People who do not understand will be trampled. So inclusion of of all of the worshipers now, uh, they all practice wickedness and the harlotry, new wine, they're just enslaved. They've been led astray by these things and they've been captivated, uh, moved to even stumble in their own ways, right? Harlotry, wine, new wine have just caused them to be drunk in their perspective of religious things. They've completely lost their way and changed their loves. Um, so then the poem 12 and 13, uh, it just, he uses trees a lot here. And, and at the beginning, he's kind of talking about just wooden things, which is probably parallel with the trees. He's just saying they fully embraced it. Imagine someone intellectually or religiously drunk. And where have they gone to idol after idol after idol? They believe it. They believe the bales are real. They believe they can go there and find a solution. Uh, They believe that those gods accept a sacrifice. Um, They've actually believed what at the end of verse 13, that it's good. The shade of the oaks and the poplars and terebinths, the sacrifices on the mountains, the incense on the hills, that's a good system. And that, as I was thinking through this, it reminded me of Genesis What did Eve look at the tree and see? She believed it was good. She believed it was better to do that. So we have here the same age old deception of the serpent. This is the lie. 
as the priests led them, they weren't, their consciences even were not probably super stricken. They were, they, they were led astray into believing the bales are better. Jeroboam has offered us a superior system to the, to the system of Yahweh. And so here we go. And, and we'll incorporate Yahweh into it. We're not abandoning it fully. You know, we're just, we're weaving, we're, we're growing, we're evolving. And, and here's, here's, a, here's a righteous system where maybe we can have some of the other things that we want. So we may move away from some of the restraints and instead enjoy some of these indulgences. And in so doing, what have they done? They've, they're, the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. They've, they've played the harlot against their God. So, end of 13, because they've believed it's better, it's led them to just fully sleep around. The daughters committing harlotry, the brides committing adultery. So you go from virgin to married woman. It's all fair game. It's all uh, adulterous. That's just the nature of the hearts now. But then he does something interesting. And here's another stab at the leadership. He says, but I'm not going to punish the daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. And I don't think he's actually, that's more a literary device that he's using because what happened to all of the occult women uh, when the when Assyria came and when Babylon came well they went right along with the men like there wasn't some sort of exception but he's saying who's responsible here who when I, when when God comes down and he says where are you Adam that's what he's saying because it's where, where did the women learn it where did the, the young maidens and the married wives learn this they learned it from the men they learned it from the leadership because the men themselves go apart with harlots and they offer sacrifices with, with a ritual harlot. And here's the most explicit statement that these sexual interactions were religious things. They were going to the temples of false gods to, to sleep with people as, as a way to incur, like to, to get fertility and to bring blessing upon the harvest and blessing upon their family and their children because that was what they believed the gods would do for them when they worshipped by sexual perversions. So the, this isn't explicit in the text, but one commentator I was reading led this way as far as the proverb, the beginning and end of the proverb. And I think it, it, it makes sense to me. So he starts, harlotry, wine, new wine, enslave the heart. Therefore, people who don't understand will be trampled. So all of the system as exampled by wine leads to drunkenness leads to folly foolish not even thinking clearly which is a description of the worshipers they're not thinking clearly but even people who don't think clearly even those who don't understand are not exempt from judgment because they've still sinned they've still worshiped false gods so they will be trampled it should provide some more weight and gravity to the idea then of of even choosing leaders uh choosing who is is setting the tone who is saying things because there's greater responsibility there so there's some new testament principles we could draw out uh, from that don't everybody desire to be a teacher but there's also important principles as far as following is concerned. 
Here, because they just followed without thinking, they were led into great depravity and wickedness and even condemnation. So what somebody told them to do, they did and it condemned them. So just because someone says it, uh, uh, this would lead us more to the Berean concept, right? Be, be those who, even, even in a moment, if a leader doesn't prize the knowledge of God, you do. Like you prize it. You make the correction internally or perhaps in a, in a setting that, that it needs to be done. So um, those are, I think, a few principles we could take from that. So then the second circuit is the warnings. The first one, uh, again, so they, move, they increase in gravity, one, two, and three. You, you'll notice a lot of sets of three with Hosea, starting with his children and then moving into all of these prophecies. So let's read through the first one, which is uh, a general encouragement. Even it seems like he includes Judah in here. Like, hey, Judah learned from Israel's mistakes. And then by the last one, he's like, Judah and Israel are the same. It's all condemned together. So here, uh, though you, Israel, play the harlot, Judah, don't offend. I take a warning here. Here's a threefold. Don't come to Gilgal, nor go up to beth or to probably um, uh, Bethel. Nor swear an oath saying as the Lord lives. Why? Because Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him drink alone or let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Okay, so it's a warning to Judah about Israel. Don't do what they're doing. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beth-Avon. Don't, don't follow the religious systems. Those are, those are like high places of worship. Uh, there's some connections we could make to kind of how Amos uses Bethel and Bethaven, but probably for the sake of time, uh, we won't. But these are, these are the area that the religious systems are, are being premiered. Um, verse 16, the um, character of Israel is exposed here. So it's his stubbornness. It's his... Um, unwillingness to move his hard heart, his stiff neck, that sort of idea. And so what the, the opposite picture then is like, okay, if you're a stubborn cow, then here's what the Lord is going to do. I'll let you forage like a lamb in open country. And that open country is like um, in the wilderness or in the extreme areas. It's like, okay, open season on this lamb. Go ahead, little lamb. Go do what you want to do. Let's see how you do overnight in the big bad wilderness and see what things come and, and get you and attack you when you have in a stubborn, I will not bend, I will not bend sort of way, refuse to hear the law of the Lord. Let's see what happens. And so there's like this separation, almost like an abandonment, like he has done with Gomer, like a, a separation of, of familial bonds. And it's just like, okay, go ahead. You, I think probably most parents have had that moment in time where you're like trying to instruct, trying to instruct. And there's just this stubbornness. It's like, you know what? <laughs> Why don't you try it? Go ahead, do it. And uh, if you still think it was wise afterwards, then we can have that talk. Um, 
So God's going to let her go to wander in the wilderness. Uh, there's this then uh, um, description that, that, that comes up within the last one too. Uh, the fault of Ephraim is that they have tied themselves to other nations. So yes, other gods, but they've also looked for help from other nations instead of looking for help from the Lord. So because she's made alliances with, with other gods, we're, we're going to, to let her be, right? Let her be alone. Let them drink in rebellion. Let them commit harlotry continually. Let them continue in this exchange of their loves. And here's the one I was mentioning earlier. The, the rulers, may, that's also the idea of being a shield. Their, their shields love dishonor and shame. So it's the complete opposite of the intent. Um, so then the, there's like this curse at, in 19. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings. Uh, the wind has bound them. It could be a whirlwind theophany, so sort of like the Lord appears in the whirlwind, or it may be more his masterful use of this creative element, creation's element, that he's going to use the wind to just wrap them up and spin them around and cause this stumbling and, uh, and this lack of understanding and stubbornness and all of this. And the result will be their great shame. So the shame of the people is now tied in with the shame of the priests from chapter four, verse seven. Uh, there's the first warning. Second warning, chapter five. Let's read verses one through seven. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Okay, so there's three lines that are all parable, or parallel. And the three people he calls out, leaders again. Priests, house of Israel, house of the king. For yours is the judgment because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. And they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him, for he has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Uh, perhaps should have mentioned this before reading it, but there's, this is the structure with the chiasm. So we start out and the first point of the chiasm is a warning. Uh, in verses one through two, there's a threefold warning, the priest, the house of Israel, uh, and the house of the king. And then at the very end, he's done with the warning and he moves to the judgment, right? The punishment. In verse seven, they've tre dealt treacherously with the Lord. They've begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. The second point in the chiasm is the prostitution, the apostasy of Israel. That starts in verse three. I know Ephraim, Israel's not hidden from me. You can't hide what you're doing from the all seeing God. Now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. I've seen you. I've seen your activities and this is what they are. The parallel point at the end of the chiasm would be 7a. They've dealt treacherously with the Lord for they have begotten 
pagan children. I read the whole verse uh, previously, but the judgment was just a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. So the warning and judgment, the identification of their sin, the prostitution and apostasy, and then he moves to their unrepentance. That's verse four and verse six. So verse four, they don't direct their deeds to God, or they don't, uh, sorry, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they don't know the Lord. They don't have no interest in hearing. They have no interest in responding. They're set in their ways. Then verse six, with their flocks and their herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him for he has withdrawn himself from them. And that initially sort of sounds like they are making this turn, but God's not hearing them. But look how they're approaching him. They're approaching him with false worship. They're approaching him with their flocks and their herds to come and make sacrifices. And if there's anything that's true that God's made, God's made abundantly clear is that he ultimately is not about sacrifices. He ultimately, that's not what he desires. He desires a change of the heart. He desires pure intentions, holy living. That's what he wants, a people set apart toward him. And this isn't that. It seems to be uh, an identification of the way that they've just done the incorporating. Like, we'll maintain Yahweh in our worship. We'll bring him sacrifices too. We'll approach him, but they're not going to find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. Remember, that takes kind of back to verse 10. They'll eat, not have enough. Commit harlotry, not increase. Because they're not actually obeying. <clears throat> so maybe imagine the idea of, like, if Gomer had come to repent to Hosea. And they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But she brings along one of her lovers to repent with her. And you're kind of like, What's he doing here? Like, what, what's going on? That's sort of what Israel's doing when they like, oh, we'll bring sacrifices, but they're the same sacrifices they're offering to other gods. So then the middle point of the chiasm, we've got the warning and the judgment, um, the prostitution, apostasy, and possibility of repentance. The middle of it is that God promises to trip them up. He promises to make them stumble. That's verse five. Their arrogance testifies to God. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So there's Judah incorporated into the sins of Israel and Ephraim. Um, and the stumbling now, uh, the, whole, the whole of the people, the whole nations are given the stumbling just like the leaders in 4 verse 5 when it said, you shall stumble in the day, the prophet shall stumble with you in the night. So now all of the things that the priests have inherited as judgment, so the people have because the people followed the priests. Then the, uh, the last and the final strongest judgment in verses 8 through the end of the chapter. <laughs> this is really strong. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth-Avon, look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. And then here is kind of the back and forth again, the accusation and what God will do. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment or their justice system is shattered and they're oppressive. 
because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Accusation. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. What God will do for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Okay, so there's uh, kind of two sections here. The first one is verses 8 through 10. And there's two poems that are parallel. They'd go A-A-A-B, A-A-A-B. So the first three lines are... Sort of like, sound the call, sound the call, sound the call, right? Gibeah, Rama, Beth Avon, blow the ram's horn, the trumpet, cry aloud, just let it be known bad things are coming, right? They're, they're blowing the trumpet. It's like a, a warning of war, and it moves from south to north with Gibeah, Rama, and Beth Avon, or Bethel. And he's saying, watch out, Benjamin, because God's coming, God's on the move. So then he does that again, A-A-A-B, with a little bit uh, more color. So he says, Ephraim will be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. B, I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Well, what is it that they've done? Of course, we've heard this already. But what they've done, and here's the second section, is uh, 11 and 13 are parallel. They've associated with other nations. They've called their provider um, Assyria. And they've called their healer Jerob. You know, like they're going to the other nations, attributing, like Gomer did, their provision to a lover, their provision to a false god. And so God promises to to make sure that they know where their provision comes from. Um, So let's just uh, 11. Then Ephraim's oppressed uh, justice system broken. Why? Because he walked with the other people. He walked with the other nations. Then here's uh, 13. The second example of this goes A-A-B-B-C-C. Ephraim saw sickness. Judah saw his wound. Well, what'd they do when they saw it? They went to Assyria and they sent to King Jerob. What were they trying to do? What were they accomplishing? They were going for healing. They were going for curing when they saw their wound. But see, he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. Now, why is he talking about this wound? What, what, what wound did they see? Well, that's verse 12. And here's some of, if not the strongest and most disturbing, maybe, metaphors of God in the Old Testament. Most of them are good qualities, or you know, like the rock communicates strength. Uh, the fortress communicates like that it's unmoving, or that it's a safe place, or all sorts of things. Uh, the lion, strength, uh, uh, the, the violence, and that sort of thing. Well, here, the two metaphors of God, he says, I'm going to be like, in our translation, moth and rottenness. And those are like, those are bad. Those aren't things that we appreciate, but maybe just let's, let's dive into the color of the language a little bit. The first one, um, you could also say, and it's within the semantic range of the word and their understanding of, of this sort of creature. It's like maggots. 
coming out of this wound. Or maybe even like the pus in a wound that you would squeeze out. Like that's what God's going to be to them. It's just disgustingness. So they see this wound and they're like, oh, that's bad. You know, that's not a good thing. Uh, And the other one is that he's like rottenness. So it's just like decay or gangrene or just this this wound that maybe if you imagine uh, like before times before modern medicine and someone gets a nasty cut and they don't know how to disinfect. We can't uh, we can't heal it. And so it just sits and disgusting things begin coming out of it. It just smells and it's just stench. And you're like, I need to do something about this. Well, what should Israel do when God is a, is rottenness and, and a moth to them? And they should plead with him for healing. Shouldn't they? And instead they're like, you know, I know a healer. So they wrap it up and head to Assyria. They can't find healing and hope and help there but they've so invested themselves into this system. They've so rejected the voice of God. They have such arrogance, right? The pride of Israel testifies to his face. They're stiff necked. They won't change their ways. So go ahead, try and handle, handle this brokenness, handle this rottenness um, with someone who doesn't have the ability to cure you or heal you of your wound. Um, so then the last, <laughs> the last metaphor goes back to a familiar one. Um, but he, the emphasis on verse 14 is the word I. He's trying to contrast himself with the nations. You go to them. You go to them. You go to them. What are you doing with them? Why are you sleeping with them? Why are you worshiping them? I, even I, I'm going to punish you. <laughs> I'll be like a lion to you and a young lion to the house of Judah. I'll tear you away. Or I'll tear you and go away. Uh, I'll take them away and no one will rescue. Probably again pointing to the um, Assyria and Babylon coming in. I will, uh, I will, verse 15, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Not like verse uh, 6. With their flocks, their herds, they went to seek the Lord. No, like a genuine change, turning their necks. When they do that, and they'll seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me, right? Contra verse 13, when they seek Assyria and King Jerob and Gomer, when she saw other lovers. So if God will heal when they turn their face, then what should Israel do? And here's verses, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 3 this call to repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn. There's the lion. So who do we go to him? Because he can heal us. He has stricken. There's the gangrene and the maggot and the disgusting wound, but he will bind us up. Beautiful uh, new Testament point out here. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. And the result, the outcome, life in his presence. Life in his sight. Life before his face. Not pride speaking out to his face, but now life, joy. What would that be? Emet, chesed, knowledge of God. All of 